I think that all good user experiences tend to have kind of three key attributes. And one is that they're valuable. Second is that they're easy to use. And the third is that they are performant. Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains and the go-to place for everybody to learn about the latest innovations in Web3, NFTs, and the decentralized web. Join us each week to hear from experts, entrepreneurs, and the early stage investors that are building the future on the blockchain. Not only will this podcast help you understand why these emerging technologies are so important, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the metaverse. GMGM, GM, welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. My name is Josh Gordon, I'm your host. Today we're talking UX, we're talking user experience design with Elizabeth from Electric Capital, leading the UX from a partner perspective there. So I think she's a great guest to have on the show, has tons of experience from building products like Google Maps, Google Search, and now diving into the world of Web3. Elizabeth, how you doing? Great, thanks Josh. How are you doing today? I am good. I love talking about user experience, especially as it pertains to all these crypto applications we're trying to discover and use. It's an important topic and one that I think a lot of people can learn from. So if you're a creator, an entrepreneur, or maybe you're just like a an investor or a collector or someone who wants to get more into crypto, you're going to want to use applications that are built for you, right? So having conversations around that, I think is super important. So to start off, I'd love to hear from you, you know, what does good user experience really mean to you? Sure. I think that all good user experiences tend to have kind of three key attributes. And one is that they're valuable. Second is that they're easy to use. And the third is that they are performant. So I think as far as valuable, this is sort of really delivering on a real user need, making people's lives easier, or opening them up to new experiences or ways of doing things. I think some examples in Web3 of this are even thinking about things of like Bitcoin, right? Which is just the ability to have non-sovereign money or thinking about stablecoin, USDC, that a lot of the world really wants US dollars. And this is a way to grant that that opportunity or possibility to people. Things like Nestcoin that are helping people move money around. And even the notion of kind of thinking of like a just a mobile wallet where you have a bank account in your pocket that isn't attached to your country is pretty awesome as well. Kind of jumping into the second, as far as being easy to use, this is really kind of making sure that core tasks are all super intuitive to use, that they're easy to find and straightforward to complete. There are a lot of experiences in Web3 that aren't necessarily super easy to use, but a couple that come to mind are thinking about Papers Wallet or MoonPay, where you know you really are using credit cards to to purchase things and to kind of get started, um, which I think is a little less frictionless and more familiar to people than you know kind of trying to buy crypto, say for example through Coinbase, and then waiting seven days for things to clear, and then figuring out how to connect a wallet and beginning to use a wallet in in, in Web three. 
let me ask you a question on that. And I actually really like that you brought up the delay it can take sometimes when even buying crypto on an exchange. Like if you want to buy your first NFT, you get excited about a, a project that's launching and you want to get it on the mint. Well, you go to Coinbase, buy ETH, and then, oh my God, you're hit with that delay. And I've actually experienced that before. And then I hit up a friend to transfer me some ETH, you know, and that, that's not a good user <laughs> experience either. But what do you think about interacting with the crypto ecosystem through the traditional methods we are used to like credit cards versus connecting with wallet and purchasing with ETH. Because I think there's some people out there who feel like things should be as crypto as possible, like fully decentralized, you know, you're buying through your wallet. And then I think there's another camp who see adoption really requiring the traditional purchasing mechanisms. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the question really is also sort of who's who's the intended audience. And I think that if you're looking to get to a billion people, you have to lean on sort of familiar experiences. So, you know, there I think kind of credit cards work as a very effective on-ramp. Now, I think the question is also sort of how does that evolve over time too? And does that stay as credit cards is kind of the more sort of blockchain native and sort of anonymity, something that is more important to people as they learn more about the space will just kind of be interesting to see how things evolve long term. Makes sense. And have you used MoonPay yourself to ever make some kind of transaction? So yes. And I think that the UX is super awesome and super simple. The UI, I will, I will sort of segregate here. I think the UI is super simple and like very familiar. The concepts are all very straightforward. Each time that I've tried to use it, I end up getting blocked by my bank and I've tried a couple different banks. Obviously, that's not a great user experience, right? There's a lot of friction if I can't actually do it. And when I was in a rush at one point to buy more ETH to make a purchase, was trying sort of several different ways to, to do this and definitely got, got blocked there. So yes, obviously still a ways to go, but yeah. Interesting. Now, interesting that there's so many layers of a user experience and it's not just within the app. There's these external factors like your bank account blocking that um, still come into play. So I haven't thought through that too much either. You know, how do some of these apps work with I would say like legacy institutions or applications that we're already familiar with, because it's not just all about the app itself. It's about how they connect to the broader world too. Totally. I think it's actually a super astute distinction because the user interface is like one component of thinking about somebody's end-to-end -end user experience. But when you look more broadly at end-to-end -end user experience, the connection and interface with legacy institutions is absolutely a part of it too. So. Gotcha. Okay, well, you were walking through a couple parts of your UX framework, and I think we hit on valuable and easy to use, and then I jumped in there. There was one more, right? The last is really about performance and just that an application or a product definitely needs to be reliable, fast, and secure. And I think this last one about security or safety is super important in Web3, just ensuring that people's information and money are secure. As far as an example here, I think one great one is actually Magic Eden, which is built as a kind of fully complete feature set. And the company's invested a huge amount in performing and indexing. And it's just as fast, right? So. Yeah. We had Magic Eden on the pod uh, a few months back. And I was really impressed by 
some of the performance updates that you're bringing up, because OpenSea was going through a lot of challenges with the site being down and even how you interact with NFTs on the site. And there was just a lot of things that Magic Ian seems to really check off as a marketplace. So the, the performance there really standing out. Out of all those areas, is there one that you think needs the most improvement in Web3? I'll actually answer two instead of one, but I think the first is kind of really bridging or kind of connecting technology with real user value, because I think that's an incredible motivator or super critical motivator to kind of getting people in the door. And then the other piece is kind of products really being intuitive, frictionless and easy to use. So I think those are the the top two that I would say. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I like that framework and, you know, maybe we'll be jumping back to it as we go throughout some more of these questions, because I think they're great ways to think through just user experiences from the high level. So given that, how do we think about UX and Web3 versus now Web2? You know, thinking about the differences, are there things that stand out to you, different ways we should be approaching problems, or is it really, you think about it the same in both? I think the framework holds true across any kind of user experience, whether, you know, even digital or or not. And the one thing that I called out before, I think is just especially important in Web3, which is around safety and security being being paramount. Gotcha. And I think I've even seen you talk about on on Twitter talking about how things start from technology first perspectives versus maybe thinking about that holistic experience first too. And it feels like with Web3, we're really thinking about it from the tech-first perspective. And I'm I'm kind of curious, is that the right approach? Yeah. So product ideas can come from anywhere. And many sort of best-in-class products in Web2 started with technology first, including both Google and, and Google Maps. And others didn't, right? Others took a great idea and then leveraged that idea with, with the support of technology, just thinking there about like YouTube, Pinterest, or Uber even. And, and I think that technology first is a, a great and natural place to be starting. I just think that when we will actually really start to see more mainstream value and adoption will be when that bridge is made between the technology and, and really offering you know, valuable experiences for a large, a large swath of humanity. Yeah. You, you just mentioned Facebook and some Web2 companies, and I definitely want to get into Google Maps and some of your experience with that later on in the pod. But before that, are there any Web2 specific onboarding experiences that you saw implemented that helped a product take off from the first place? Right now, so much conversation in crypto, I think around this, getting things to take off is around like network effects and how do you incentivize users through token design. But I guess I'm also interested, maybe there's UX factors at play that can make a real impact on getting that first 1,000 users or getting a product launched. Yeah, a great example to think about with regards to onboarding and getting people to see the value and something and to kind of truly just like taste that value and want more is Facebook because Facebook doesn't work if you show up and you create an account and you're just there, right? Like if you don't have friends in your network, you don't have content and it's just not an interesting experience at all. So Facebook invested a huge amount of energy and resources into onboarding people And there, I think the magic number was really like people having at least seven friends. 
you know, that was just crucial for people to have a great experience and then, you know, kind of really got, got the flywheel going as far as people seeing content, wanting to come back, beginning to share content, making more connections and more connections. And Facebook did some pretty scrappy things along the way as well. Like being able to sync your phone contacts was a great way to seed a network virality. And even just thinking about kind of key just sort of elements or nodes where you could kind of connect people through, obviously having things like profile picture, name, but then even thinking about information like hometown, schools, workplaces that kind of gave these sort of connections that allowed allowed the social network to grow, grow hugely. You know, as you talk through that, I started thinking about domain names. I'm always thinking about domain names a little bit, just working on Unstoppable, but like one of the first use cases for domains is making it easier to send and receive money, like using a human readable name versus a hex address. And who do you send money to? Like you don't send it to strangers, right? You send it to friends and family, really, as the core people. Um, maybe you send it to businesses or people you meet online eventually too, but definitely something to be learned from Facebook and how you got, you know, you mentioned you need at least seven friends. I mean, I'm kind of thinking about the onboarding flow when you get a domain, like how do you get your first seven contacts that you can, that you know their domain names for? Oftentimes I find I don't actually know anyone else's domain name, except for really the people I work with since we all, we all rep ours on Twitter and whatnot. So I'm going to pass some feedback there to the, the team that. There's definitely something to learn from Facebook there. So I appreciate you bringing up that story. Absolutely. Now, what components of Web3 infrastructure do you think need better onboarding to gain adoption? Because there's, I mean, I just brought up domains, but there's tons more infrastructure out there. And I wonder if, if any stand out to you. We mentioned a couple things too, as far as sort of speed of funding and things. But I think wallets are a huge one because no matter how or where, or what you're doing with, with, with Web3, you really do need a wallet. That is something that I think will absolutely need to evolve significantly before it gets adopted in a much more widespread way. And even there, thinking about like the concept of a wallet as your digital identity isn't something that maps to most people's mental models. In real life, right? a wallet is something you keep in your back pocket or your purse, and your finances are private, and you'd never think about that as being your your primary forward identity. And so there's that that kind of just conceptual evolution that I think will likely shift. And maybe it's more terminology, but it's it's also just kind of I think there's that that concept. And then on top of the concept, there's also just currently still a lot of friction around setting up a wallet having to manage kind of multiple wallets across chains. And as you mentioned too, sort of having a hex address as your ID that I think are all things that, that will definitely need, need to evolve in order to sort of increase the number of people who are using them. For sure. I think one thing that we're thinking about and as a way to improve that onboarding experience in wallets and Unstoppable, we've talked to many of the major wallet providers out there and it's when you get a wallet, how can you add getting an NFT domain into your onboarding flow, like claiming a free NFT domain when you sign up for a wallet? We did it with blockchain.com and blockchain.com's wallet and saw pretty great results so far. And it makes everything a little bit more understandable. We're used to getting usernames when we sign up for an application. And if you think about a wallet a little bit like that too, getting your NFT domain name is a little bit like you know getting your username. I got a quick story to share with you. And because you talk about terminology and 
this is a story that I've tried to implement in a lot of areas of my life. And I think it also applies to how we think about crypto. And it's like KFC, I don't know, it was 10, 15 years ago or something like that. Maybe last day, we're trying to figure out how to boost sales. And so they, they looked at to-go orders and they were like, how do we innovate to-go orders? Well, what do people do when they get their food? When they get it, they put it on their lap. So instead of putting food on your lap, where else can you put your food when you get it in the drive-through? They looked at the cup holder in a car and they were like, the cup holder hasn't been innovated on for since the car was created. But what do you put in a cup holder? You put literally cups that hold beverages in them. But if you remove the term cup holder and you just call it a place to store things, what can you store there? And so they ended up coming up with the KFC to-go cup, which is literally just a cup with fries and like chicken nuggets in it instead of soda in it. And I try to use that story a lot in my own life to say, instead of calling it this, you know, what if we took the name away? Like instead of a, a wedding, call it a day you spend with family and friends. What do you do? And I think you do something different maybe on a wedding day if you call it like the best day you ever had with your family and friends and if you called it a wedding. Because once you call it something, you start applying practices to it or routines or in a wallet, we think about it in a certain way. So I do wonder with wallets, if we didn't call it a wallet, what else would it would look like? Would new functionality come from it? Would people be more open to adopting it, et cetera? Yeah. And yeah, I think there too, the exercise of just stripping away the terminology wallet and defining just kind of capturing all the things that it is responsible for and that it could be responsible for, the different connections, um, the different capabilities that it opens up, I think is, is yeah, awesome. They're such a good idea. I had to throw that story in there. It's one of my favorites. I love it. I also, I also have to say, the minute you put terminology on things like, for example, a cake versus a wedding cake, it also goes 100x in price, right? So there's uh, expectations are there and so, so are some downstream impacts too. Mm, yeah, we'll have to keep an eye out. How will terminology <laughs> change in Web3 over the coming years? It'll be very interesting to see it shift. And I think we've already seen it shift a little bit, even with calling, we're calling Web3 Web3 today. It's, it used to be crypto. And I, that's already getting, I think, more general consensus. People are more open to Web3 than they are crypto. So let's talk about your experience building some products because you've worked on products that have actually reached a billion plus users, which is something most people really can't say. And those were really Google search and Google maps, right? So well, and yeah, and also YouTube and Facebook. So add the biggest ones of all time to the <laughs> list. I, I, I so sorry, I left that out. Google Maps is actually one of my favorite products ever. I I've like, I think I wrote one of my college essays about Google Maps. So that's awesome. It is also one of my favorite products that I've ever worked on. I find it quite endearing that in the world of Web3, people really love Google Maps. Yeah. To me, it's about connection, right? And I also think that's a big thing that Web3 focuses on is connection. You know, you're connecting different things, but there's still that underlying value that you are thinking about. So were there any early decisions when you're designing those applications that maybe you can extrapolate to, to Web3 or maybe if you have some of the biggest lessons learned from working on them and what drove their success to share with us? Sure. With Google Maps, it really was this trifecta of sort of user value, intuitive user experience, and speed. I started working on Google Maps in kind of 2006. You know, at the time, MapQuest was the leading online mapping website. So I remember having a chart on the wall where we were trying to 
beat MapQuest out, sort of market share. And then I think, sorry to sort of go down memory lane there, but it just is sort of putting in context that like at the time, Google Maps was not the, did not dominate the market as, as it does today. And obviously has continued to sort of evolve and be refined over time. But a couple of the sort of things that I think really went into making Google Maps an incredible experience for people was, I mean, one, there were a lot of competitors in the space, just thinking about MapQuest, Yahoo Maps. We leaned quite a bit on research to understand like what features were actually important and what was relevant in different contexts and different locations. And we doggedly worked to make the features that we knew were important to people much better. Like at the time, printed driving directions were huge, and that was how people navigated. And we kind of iterated and iterated and iterated on how you could make printed driving directions as as kind of fluid as possible to use. And also the data was just incredible. At the time, as we were kind of also expanding internationally, like we couldn't expand to some countries because there wasn't digital map data that you could license. Now, you could look at this as just a blocker and, okay, there's no map data. We can't, can't show up in this country. But we actually built or kind of assembled a team to trace satellite imagery and document kind of characteristics of roads. So they would look at satellite imagery, find roads, trace the roads, and then say kind of what was the surface type for a given road, how many lanes did it have when roads intersected, were those intersections with a stoplight, were they underpasses and overpasses, and so forth, which I still love is just like a super scrappy way to not accept obstacles, right, or kind of work around them. And I think just a few things to throw out there too, right? The performance was super fast and way better. It obviously, Google Maps leaned, leaned on Ajax. And so the ability to just pan and zoom without the map tiles reloading as you kind of clicked left arrow or right arrow or in or out was just a, an incredible joyful experience for people. And the visuals were also good and they continued to get better. So I know that was a little bit, a little bit long-winded, but I think a couple sort of key things to think about there are like data sets and performance are super important parts of the user experience really figuring out what matters to people and making those experiences awesome are key. And also, you know, visual systems kind of help create scale. We had tons of information we could show and it looked super messy for a while, but over time we really iterated on the visuals of the map tiles so that they could accommodate more information without it looking like a garage sale on the map. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, great breakdown there. And it definitely hit on a lot of the UX framework you laid out to us in the beginning on things needing to be performant and easy to use and valuable. And really interesting just how you just mentioned there at the end, how you were able to move around the map without a reloading. I mean, what a performance enhancement that is. And I wonder how people are going to be, and builders, entrepreneurs are going to be using like the blockchain data to make some of these decisions. Because it's interesting when you have these on-chain on-chain transaction and data points, you not only do you as a builder get to look at that and make some assumptions, but you also as a maybe a rival builder can look at, you know, how many how many clicks are being done, you know, how many downloads. It's it's a little bit more open and definitely entrepreneurs can tap into the blockchain data to make some decisions. Any lessons learned or you know, what drove the success at YouTube or Facebook that's different than Google Maps? We talked about the sort of importance of the network a little bit at, at Facebook, but I think 
thinking too just about sort of ecosystem overall. So YouTube obviously had kind of three main kind of constituents, which were really content creators, content viewers, and advertisers, which advertisers were a super important part of the flywheel of making it all happen. But there it's kind of you get into this piece of the more content creators produce, the more videos there are for people to watch, the more time people spend on the site, and then the more creators are incentivized to produce more content. And you know, you really had a great flywheel going, but we absolutely had to there make sure that we understood each of the kind of really the different the different users the different parts of the of the whole ecosystem that made the product work as a whole yeah i think about that flywheel too for unstoppable you know it's you want to be able to send someone money to their domain name and be able to receive you have it so you can receive it but now can i send to anybody so the more users you get the bigger that network effect grows and becomes more valuable for everyone yeah. One more that I would love to throw in there too, just thinking about kind of lessons learned. I think this is, I don't know, or at least I think of it as being a fairly well-known story, but I think for Google search also, I think one super key lesson learned was about simplicity. Before Google was big, before kind of it really came on or into the world, you know, you had a lot of domain website directories and you could search, but there were tons of links and things were super, I don't know, busy, confusing, technical. And then along came Google and Sergey put a search box on the website and that was it with the button that said search because that was all he knew how to do in HTML. So that was just kind of where where things started. But I think the the beauty and benefit of it, right, was that you had just something super simple, and then obviously became kind of iconic of, of the brand too, but something super simple that people could just show up and do. And there weren't a bunch of choices to make or things to figure out. And over time, people learned how to kind of use that search box better and better. They're just thinking about simplicity being a great constraint. Obviously, the value <laughs> needs to be there too. And in, I mean, I think Google also just had incredible indexing and incredible content as well. But those two things combined, um, the ability to access this incredible data set um, through an incredibly simple UI was a super powerful constraint for it. Yeah. When, when you talk about simplicity, one of the things I was thinking of was how many clicks it takes to, you know, perform some action. And I feel like I had heard a rule of thumb is, you know, you never make a user do more than three clicks. But especially when we're using wallets, I find that when I'm using crypto applications, it's crazy sometimes how many clicks I have to do to do something because maybe I click on the mint button and then MetaMask pops up and then I have to click three different things, you know, sign, sign this, sign that. So is that a barrier to simplicity too, just having to sign transactions? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. I wonder how we get that number down. I don't expect you to have an answer, but um, <laughs> how we get the number of clicks down just for really any basic transaction is because I hope we're getting to a point where all the actions we're taking are, and I'm using air quotes for people listening, like they're transactions, they're recorded on the blockchain. And and for most transactions today, maybe I'm wrong if, if it's not all, but every transaction you need to sign for, and that's not really scalable in a simple way. I think it also depends there too of what people are doing, right? And kind of which transactions end up 
needing to be recorded and which ones are over time. Like, I don't think we're there today, but over time, I imagine that there would also be many trivial interactions that that don't necessarily all have to be on-chain. Totally. And not everything needing to be on-chain is a, is a good point to make. We're talking about things that are a little complicated. I saw you say on Twitter that crypto tasks are still complicated, but this is the historical norm in terms of, I think, new tech starting out complicated and simplifying over time. Could we walk through a little bit bad crypto user experiences or interfaces you've seen or interacted with and go from there? Sure. I mean, I, I think that Yes, as you pointed out earlier too, with even just trying to mint something, that experiences are generally quite complex and complicated. I think the question too is just really like, what is your baseline? Like, what are you comparing the experience to? So if you take crypto today and you're using Instagram as your baseline, like the UX in crypto is terrible. But if you're using something like Bank of America as as your baseline, then the crypto experience is actually pretty good. Like in today's world, you actually have to go to a physical bank that is closed more hours of the week than it's open. And there are all sorts of different uh, hidden transaction fees. It's really hard to send money overseas. And if you take the ability of what you can do with crypto, that's actually a much better user experience all in all. So I think you can think of crypto UX as bad or as good, depending on who you're trying to reach. So I think if we look at sort of early adopters, crypto UX is actually okay. It definitely could be better, right? But people, early adopters are willing to jump through a lot of hoops and deal with high friction experiences because they really see the value or promise of the value. And DeFi is a great example for this because apps are built for professional traders who are doing tons of complex things. But, you know, there, if you think about what needs to happen for crypto to reach a billion people, the baseline really does have to be Instagram and we need the user experiences to be dramatically better. 100%. The last time I went into a bank was probably maybe almost a year ago. I had some bonds that someone had gifted me, you know, when I was very young, I had had them for over 18, 20 years, and I wanted to cash them out. I bought some ETH with it. And it was only like, they gave me like a $50 bond, you know, it was worth 75 or something like that. It took like 40 minutes in a bank to get this bond <laughs> cash. And I, the whole time I, I went with my mom, actually, because we were, we were just hanging out. And the whole time I just kept mentioning to her, man, this sucks. Don't you see how much this sucks? Like, I'm never doing this again. I'm never giving anyone a bond as a gift because I don't want to subject them to 40 minutes in the bank. So instead, I'm just going to send some ETH with a click of a button or maybe five because I have to sign some transactions. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I guess just to close out on the kind of UX, the worst UX UI talk, again, bringing it to domains because I think it's just so applicable is how like domains, I think, can improve a lot of the user experiences we're familiar with today on a handful of levels. One, like you talk about safety and security in your UX framework, like connecting your wallet to a site is an extremely dangerous thing. We we saw so many scams and hacks and phishing attacks over the bull run that it kind of just started to become like, I don't know, it was almost comical, like all the every day we're seeing another one. And people connect their wallets to sites that they believe to be true. And then in an instant, all their NFTs are gone. So First of all, not connecting your wallet using login with an NFT domain, I think is a great replacement. And then there's even the, we talked about usernames a little bit earlier. 
using an NFT to be like your identity in Web3 and on the internet. So when you sign into sites, you're not seeing your wallet address in the corner, you're seeing your name. I mean, that to me is a UX improvement. So there's a, a lot of, I think there's a lot around, I mean, the wallets, the the naming of things that to be improved. Yeah. And I think they're like also just comparing to sort of web two experiences, like thinking about something like Venmo, right? Where it's like, if I am sending money to somebody, I do have a profile picture, a username, the ability to, you know, scan their barcode, verify the last four digits of their phone number. I think it is quite frictionless, right? But there is just enough friction there to make me also feel like I am making a good call about sending money to this person and this is the right person. Yep. Yep. You bring up a great point about checking their profile and even the phone number verification. So lots of layers to that authentication we're seeing in Web 2 that eventually will find their ways to Web 3. So big question for you here. We talked a lot about UX. You shared your experiences building you know, products that reached a billion people. So now I got to ask, what needs to happen to open the floodgates to a billion people globally for Web3? Yeah, this may be a bit of an oversimplification, but there are effectively two main buckets of crypto experiences today. One is really thinking about the money side or financial side. And I think the experiences here make sense to people who spent a lot of time thinking about making money, moving money around, options trading, derivatives, etc. But this also just isn't a massive number of people, even if you look at people off of crypto, right? The the number of people who are doing derivatives trading is much smaller than the number of people who are you know, generically searching the internet. I think the second sort of bucket of crypto is really around NFTs and games, which have a much larger potential audience. And especially as you think about things like play to earn or NFTs as access into communities or different events. And so I think the second bucket is one that has potentially a much, much larger audience and thinking there about how NFTs begin to connect people. But I think all this being said, like we still definitely need to close the gap to people seeing value in these things. And I think it will just take time, iteration, and a lot of creativity as well to really close the gap between the capabilities of crypto and the value that people see day to day in their in their real life. For sure. So that was like the the macro take on it. And then thinking a little bit more micro, what what trends do you see growing in 2023 that will, you know, ultimately work towards some of those, you know, those things that are gonna get us to a billion? Yeah. I mean I think one big thing, right, and we talked about this a little bit, but is that right now technology is at the forefront of a lot of crypto experiences. And I think this moving to be kind of under the hood a little bit more so that people don't even necessarily realize that they are using products that are built on top of crypto will be one huge thing that they are happy and excited and delighted and see a huge amount of value in these experiences, but don't necessarily connect it to the technology underneath, right? Like I use Google today, but I don't think about Google's algorithms. And then the second thing is just many more mobile experiences that I think a lot of stuff is still very much desktop first. And I think here, like one, thinking about where where people are and also thinking just globally too of number of people on mobile devices versus desktop devices and then I think also even thinking from like thinking more about UI here, but thinking about 
constraints. And we talked about simplicity as a constraint a little bit with, with Google, but I think you can't put as much stuff on a mobile screen as you can on a desktop. So you are forced to make decisions and prioritize what elements are most important in the UI and making sure that those are super easy to find. And I think that exercise of constraint actually helps people also make much better browser kind of desktop experiences as well. Yeah. I'm a little upset that you're saying less things fit on the mobile app than my 38 inch <laughs> ultra wide curved monitor that I have in front of me. Do you have two in front of you also? <laughs> I hate to say I have a second one. Yeah. Uh, off to yeah. the side because 38 <laughs> inches wasn't enough, but great point that it really forces you to simplify and think about what needs to be at the hands of the user. And it was also, I found myself reflecting on that, that mobile comment and I feel like over the last year was the first time that every new application I was using, I went to the desktop first, whereas for the past couple of years, every time there was something new that I wanted to use, some company, some app, it was always on my phone, whether I was shopping or doing social stuff or even video editing and crypto, I went back to the desktop for the first time in a little bit. So, yeah, which totally mirrors my experience as well. Yeah. Yeah. So mobile for sure, and you know, we're, we just came out with a mobile app at Unstoppable, but even today or this week I saw Helium, they're like a decentralized network project. They came out with an announcement saying they're going to be doing a mobile crypto carrier, like cell phone network for the phone uh, that will be crypto based. And a couple weeks ago, we saw Solana come out and say they're building an actual physical mobile phone that's gonna have like the Solana, everything Solana integrated and built into it. So I think we're seeing the early signs of a mobile crypto future. So thanks for sharing that. All right, with my my last question for you before we get into the ending of the pod, which is the one to web three segment, I wanna ask you about your why for working in web three. And the reason I ask is because when I see you know leaders from web two transition over, I find it interesting to hear about like what enticed you to come over and work in a new industry. I was working in the data science field, which maybe isn't necessarily traditional web two because it's not social necessarily, but I still was making a, a very much a functional technology shift. And I know I appreciate hearing why other people make that same move too. Well, we talked a little bit about terminology earlier, right? And if you're working on something and suddenly it gets coined, as Web 2, and there's something else that's Web 3, you start to realize that you might be in the wrong space. Humor aside there, I think there really were two key uh, things that, that drew me in. One is just realizing or believing, really, that crypto is very much in its infancy. And I think building the conviction that it will be powering much of our lives under the hood going forward. And uh, I think also forcing me to reflect on internet in sort of mid mid 2000s right of like I didn't realize at the time that I was working on something in it such in such an early stage it's such a rare and incredible opportunity to get to help shape something at the beginning and I think the related point is that as we've talked about quite a bit there is a lot of room for improvement in thinking about kind of frictionless user experiences. And I think there's tremendous opportunity from a design lens to really meaningfully impact a lot of design and standards across Web3. Awesome. It's good to hear that you see that opportunity is present. 
So if you're listening right now and you're interested in jumping into Web3, you, you heard someone from you know, a really respected tech background talk about that. So I'd encourage you to think about making the jump yourself too. With that, I wanna ask three more questions, rapid fire. The, the first one is, who's an influential Web3 creator, entrepreneur, collector that's inspired or educated you on your journey? One is definitely on Twitter. He's at Hemion, H-E-M-E-O-N, who is a former tech designer turned oil painter and NFT creator who has been a wealth of knowledge as far as opening up the hood and kind of just looking at the world of art and NFTs. And then also I definitely rely on daily and answers to daily questions from Maria Shen and Raph Electric and kind of the whole, the whole team at Electric Capital. For sure. Hope to maybe be talking to Raph on the pod soon. So great call out there. Awesome. Second question, your favorite NFT, what is it? So I think it really is anything from a creator called at Crypto Bauhaus, who creates generative art, but it's all from abstract shapes, very much in the in the style of Bauhaus. And they did an incredible series based on wallet addresses where your wallet address actually defined the elements and their size and shape and color, which I thought was, was pretty awesome too. Sweet. Yeah, I love generative art. I think that generative art is one of the cooler kind of art forms that I feel like I really got to tap into throughout my NFT journey. Well, an extra bonus when it also looks like something you'd be delighted to hang on your wall. So... For sure. I have a massive print, not on camera, unfortunately, because it's too big to fit behind me of a, a piece that I have in my collection. So it's being I love blocked it. by your monitors, right? <laughs> it, it is. It is. And third question, in five years, what's the craziest thing you think we'll be doing in the metaverse that we're just not thinking about yet? I don't know. <laughs> but I think the wonderful thing about the intersection of technology and people is really just how creative, quirky, and surprising people are. I mean, backing up 20 years ago, I don't think that anyone would have predicted a huge use case for the internet was to like share and watch funny cat videos. And we also definitely wouldn't have predicted that we would be okay with sharing a huge amount of private information, including home addresses, photos of our children, and so forth, and consider it super benign and normal. So in short, I, don't, I have no idea. But I do think that we will ultimately see NFTs as a big underlying player. For sure. I had a podcast episode with a PhD historian, Josh Rosenthal, a couple months ago. We actually talked about something. You bring up the cats and it made me think of that. Like He brought up a really interesting topic I just want to share quickly here is that during the time of the printing press in the medieval, the Renaissance times, a lot of the artwork that we see in the history books is the... It's the really elaborate, fancy stuff, maybe like the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, like stuff like that. But so much of what was actually being printed was what he was calling like lowbrow art. You know, the things of peasants defecating on nobles on like blocks of wood and stuff like that. And that's what would make the rounds at the local pub or something. So we may be seeing some more parallels to how art is being shared on the internet more than ever now. We just don't even always realize it. I totally agree. The sharing of, you know, the cat videos and some of these NFTs we see, definitely, who would have expected that? But it's almost, we can share that more easily now because we have a medium to, it might have always been shared, but that might be a hot take too. So, all right. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. This was a great discussion. I, I learned a couple things. Definitely going to be reflecting on the UX framework you share with us. 
and I'm going to be thinking about it when I'm using all the crypto applications and you know giving feedback at, at Unstoppable to our product team. So very helpful and insightful. Can you share with us you know, how to connect with you going forward after listening to the pod? Yep. You can find me on Twitter at at Eliz Laraki, E-L-I-Z-L-A-R-A-K-I. And you can also find more about Electric Capital on Twitter at at Electric Capital. Boom. Love it. We'll, we'll do. And I, uh, I follow both of you already. So thank you for listening to the Unstoppable podcast. I hope you learned something today and think about UX as you go through your Web3 journey yourself. Please give us a subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, really helps us grow. And with that, I'll see you next week with another episode of the podcast. I'll see you on Twitter in the metaverse. Peace out. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share this with your friends. And remember, this conversation doesn't have to end here. Tweet us your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. I look forward to hearing from you, and thank you so much for listening.